Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast. Today on the pod, housing crunch with rents continuing to move upwards. Tenants now call for a cap on rent hikes even when renters move out. Plus, zipping away. We look at the City of Vancouver's e-bikes here service that will launch later this year. And Underground Highway, tech contributor Andy Brar joins us from Las Vegas where he shares his experience driving through a subterranean tunnel for electric vehicles. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Now, last September, former Premier John Horgan announced a 2% rent increase cap for 2023, which just came into effect uh, just a few days ago. Now, while housing advocates agree that capping rent increases rather than tying them to the inflation rate will limit the cost of living increases for some renters, it doesn't address the real problem of creating housing instability for tenants, the economic incentive for landlords to a victim. That's the core issue. Now, a Victoria area housing organization wants to see more done, specifically barring landlords to jack up rent significantly when a new tenant signs a lease. Joining me now to discuss the proposal is Douglas King. He's the executive director of the Together Against Poverty Society in Victoria. Doug, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's touch a little bit about uh, your organization, TAP's um, advocacy for the vacancy control system, a vacancy control system, how would it work? Yeah, so TAPS is one of the largest uh, nonprofit legal providers on Vancouver Island, and this vacancy control um, proposal that we have is, is really based out of our work giving direct representation to tenants day in by day, you know, speaking to them about their problems and seeing the kind of increase in rent. Uh, vacancy control is, is all about trying to control the rate of rent and stop it from having these kind of significant um, dramatic changes year over year. In the last two years, especially, we've seen that rate of rent increase in our urban centers by, you know, over 15%. Uh, vacancy control is designed to slow that growth uh, and try to keep it more manageable over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any other jurisdictions that do what you are advocating for? There are, actually. There, um, there's vacancy control in, in Quebec. Uh, there's actually been vacancy control for a long, long time in Quebec. A very, very kind of entrenched system there. Uh, PEI is also another province that has vacancy control written to their Residential Tenancy Act and specifically states that rent is tied to the unit and not to the individual and a landlord is regulated by how much they can raise rent in between tenancies, which really is what vacancy control is all about. Uh, We actually had vacancy control here in British Columbia. We had it in the 80s, the last time that we had really significant inflation problems, really concerns about cost of living. Uh, the NDP government in the 80s introduced vacancy control, and it wasn't a very effective tool uh, for making sure that those kind of high inflationary costs and cost of living costs didn't cause rent to, to kind of go get to a point where it was unmanageable. So uh, for our uh, listeners, so when a tenant leaves um, uh, a lease agreement, uh, moves on, of course, the landlord would advertise the suite, and uh, I'm going to assume... I'm going to pick a number out of the year. Let's say uh, a tenant for one bedroom condominium was playing for, let's say, $2,200 a month. That landlord can look at the market and say, you know what, I could probably get $2,400 or $2,500 a month. That is going to be my asking price, and I will and I will go from there. So that's what you're essentially wanting to eliminate is that significant increase uh, between tenants. Yeah, exactly. And and really, when you think about it, you know, we we already control rent during a tenancy, so. When someone is in a tenancy, you know, there's, there's provincial regulations on how much rent can be increased year over year. And really all vacancy control does is extend that in between tenancies as well and make it not tied to the individual but tied to the unit. 
And, and the reason for that is because, you know, when we keep having a system where landlords are able to put up units for as much as the market can bear, when you combine that with what we've had in British Columbia over the last at least of a decade now, which is really, really low vacancy rates, high competition for units, then the cost of rent is going to keep driving up and up and up. And, and honestly, we're starting to see this stratification within our rental market where the only people that can afford rent are typically very high income earners. The lowest income earners are being shut out entirely of the market. And, and whereas before we had a relatively small amount of people that needed government support to be housed, that number is increasing year over year. And as we build more social housing, we still can't catch up to the amount of people that need that support. What do you say to the argument that, look, these landlords are putting up their capital, there are hard-earned money, uh, they have, um, in many cases, mortgages to pay on that very property. Uh, mortgages that, by the way, if they're on variable rate, have gone up significantly because of inflation. Um, they're dealing with probably higher insurance costs, uh, repairs that are required. Th- those are not fixed costs either. In, in many cases, they're also going up higher than the rate of inflation or even a 2% increase as it is this year. What do you say to that argument to a landlord? Say, wait a minute, I've got costs too. And they're going up a lot more than 2% a year. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and that's a legitimate concern. And I think the reality is, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, if you institute vacancy control, there will be a financial cost to some uh, landowners and some landlords because they won't be able to recover some of their costs and related to, to kind of these, these large increases in rent. Now, the way that we look at it is that at the end of the day, when somebody purchases a property, especially when they take on a mortgage, they're signing a contract and they're taking on responsibility and liability, especially if they signed a variable rate mortgage. When you sign a variable rate mortgage, you sign on to the possibility that those rates are going to change, and you have to be responsible yourself for those changes. You can't necessarily just pass on the mistakes that you have made financially onto your tenants, and that's really what we hear from landlords is, is part of their business plan is being able to, to essentially make tenants responsible for their profits. And, and if those, those profits become endangered because of the financial market change, you know, really it's about passing it on to the person who's lowest on the totem pole and saying, well, if I can make my tenant pay for this, then that's great. Um, for most landlords, the, you know, the cost that they have in relation to ownership of their building um, is not something... They have a flexibility, I guess, that's there that tenants don't have. They always have the option to sell. Um, if, if they get to a point where it's not financially viable, they're not making a profit, um, they always have the ability to sell their property and put it up on the market. Tenants don't have that. Uh, tenants don't have the ability to just move into another property like that. What they face is eviction. And, and really what we're seeing right now is kind of this constant pressure on tenants to cover the costs of landlords, to ensure the profits of landlords when all they're trying to do is just ensure they have a place to live. Uh, do you believe uh, that there is a role for the private sector in dealing with our housing challenges? And what I mean by that is that, as you just said, if a rental suite for a landlord is not financial, financially viable, they should sell it. But if that were to come to fruition in, in, a, in a larger scale, does that not also lead to the um, uh, a restriction on how many people actually build and sell condos, which is the private sector. I mean, without these landlords making money and a profit, it may mean less housing gets built, or we, there's a heavier reliance on the public, uh, in, the, in the public sector, which means government to build. Uh, do you not scare away potential supply when you start saying that, look, 
Too bad, landlords. If you're not making money, just sell your property. Many folks may not build. Uh, Developers may not build because it's not viable for some that do invest in these condos. Yeah, I think one of the greatest myths of vacancy control is that it would suppress development. What, What we have found in jurisdictions where it's been instituted is that in some ways it actually has the opposite effect because if, if vacancy control is, is in place in the residential tenancy market, the only units that can be put on the market for as much as possible, as much as the market can bear, uh, with as much increase as you want, are new units. So, you know, property developers know that if they're creating new housing, they're going to get an added benefit from that because they're going to be able to put it on the market for as much as they possibly can. You know, we've, we've definitely seen a slowdown in development unrelated to the cost of rent because of the cost of, of you know, inflation has, has impacted materials, all of those things. And, and one of the things that's really difficult about the housing market is all of these things are interconnected. You know, vacancy control is really about protecting tenants and, and, and boiling it down to the thing that's the most important right now, which is that we can't keep having these years where rent goes up 15 or 20 percent. We can't keep squeezing the market like that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, there has to be a place in the private market for tenants. We want the private market to be housing people. Because if we can't afford places to live in the private market, if if low-income earners and working poor can't actually afford to live in the private market, then we're spending more and more tax dollars. We're spending millions and billions of dollars to try to subsidize their housing and create housing that's affordable for them. Um, and, and that's something that we're never going to be able to outpace. We're never going to be able to build enough housing co- to, to house every single person who makes less than $50,000 a year. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Douglas King. He's uh, an executive director for T- Together Against Poverty Society. And uh, TAPS is advocating for a vacancy uh, control system uh, similar to um, other jurisdictions like uh, Quebec and other, um, other provinces. Essentially, if you own a, um, a, a rental suite as a landlord, uh, you would raise um, uh, the rent um, by about 2% a year, as is the case now, depending on what uh, the, the consumer, consumer price index says. Um, rather than seeing those significant increases, uh, when a uh, tenant moves out and a new tenant comes in. Uh, Douglas, um, give me a sense of the stories you're hearing in Victoria, where you're located, uh, in regards to you advocating for this. What kind of stories are you hearing? Yeah, so one of the other reasons why we're, we're strong proponents of vacancy control is is because, you know, in addition to, to trying to control those increases in rent year over year, trying to limit it to a manageable amount, um, Vacancy control offer, offers protection as well, and, and it offers protection to, to what we see are some of the most vulnerable tenants in the market. So we have a situation right now where it, it's often the best tenants that are the most vulnerable and being punished right now. If you have a tenant who's lived in a building for 30 or 40 years, during the duration of that tenancy, they've, they've benefited from rent control, uh, and the landlord hasn't been able to increase the rent because they haven't moved out. So it's the longest tenure tenants. It's it's often seniors. It's people who have been living in their suites for decades, uh, and obviously they are good tenants because they continue to live in their suites for decades. Those are the ones who are the most risk of eviction right now, and they're being targeted for eviction because to to a landlord, if that suite can be vacated, then the rent can be increased sometimes by you know almost double the amount right now because you know, for people who have been living in these low-rise apartments, especially. Um, their rent is so far off the market rate 
that it's it's really difficult for landlords not to see the incentivization of profit there. So vacancy control also protects those tenants because it takes away the incentive for a landlord to evict an individual solely for the purpose of raising rent. Um, and another thing we need to remember is there are mechanisms out there for a landlord to raise rent that doesn't involve eviction. Uh, how successful do you think you're going to be in regards to the advocacy of this particular proposal? I know Premier Eby um, has been talking about looking at things differently when it comes to housing and, and, and rentals. He's got a new housing minister, Ravi Kailan. How successful do you think you'll be in regards to this particular proposal for government? Well, I mean, it's certainly a time will tell kind of issue. You know, I think the government has been very, very clear that they want to to try to impact the housing market and create an affordable housing market. They want to do that primarily through taxation and not through things like rent regulation. Um, we've been trying this for a long time now, and, and nothing seems to be working. And, and I think what you're starting to hear is a much, much stronger voice, especially from the younger generation. You know, people who are who are in their 20s, early 30s, who are really clearly priced out of the market, you're starting to hear them be much more vocal about what they want government to do. And it's not taxation. It's not a little bit of support to try to get into a mortgage. Um, it's really substantial systemic change in how we view housing and stop kind of the commodification of housing, which has gotten us into this, this crisis that we're in. So, you know, we, we're not under the illusion that the current government um, is going to look at vacancy control immediately across the board. Um, that being said, you know, we're starting to see local governments look at vacancy control for specific types of housing that they want to protect. Uh, the city of Vancouver recently introduced the first municipal form of vacancy control on SRO buildings in Vancouver, um, and that is in the court system right now as it's been challenged. So we're very much looking at that and, and looking at the possibility of local government being able to kind of pick up the mantle of vacancy control if the province isn't willing to do it. Doug, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. In just a few minutes, the puck will drop in Halifax as Canada goes for the gold against Chechia at the World Junior Hockey Championships. The defending champs advance to the final, the 6-2 win over the United States, while the Czechs dumped Sweden 2-1 in the other semifinal. Now, North Vancouver's Connor Bedard is the tournament's leading scorer with 8 goals and 21 points. Joining me now to talk about the World Juniors and hockey here in British Columbia and across Canada, in the state of hockey, is Global BC's sports director, Squire Barnes. Squire, thanks for joining us today. No problem. Good to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, every tournament, when you think of hockey, attracts attention. Uh, but uh, maybe it's just me on social media or just watching way too many sports shows. But this one seems um, uh, special in the sense of a- excitement and energy. What's your sense of it in regards to um, this year's World Championships? Well, I think it helps when you have what's considered a generational player mm-hmm. wearing a Canadian uniform. And Connor Bedard has captured the imagination. Not that people didn't know about him before. The hockey fan knew about him. The peripheral hockey fan, sports fan, is now learning about Connor Bedard and the brilliance you know he's put on as a junior, not just at the international level, but also in the Western Hockey League. He plays for the Regina Pats. But I think when you have a kid like this and he's wearing a Canadian uniform, that brings in more attention than usually is afforded and a lot of attention is usually afforded this tournament but connor is making it even more intense mm-hmm. how would you describe canada's play in this tournament so far well i think at the start they were a little discombobulated in fact the team they're playing today for the gold medal czechia beat canada on boxing day when the tournament began 5-2 and it was a shock to the canadians to lose in that fashion but canada that day 
didn't look like they were set. You know, these tournaments are essentially an all-star tournament. These kids don't play together. They're sort of put together very quickly, and, and then they, they have to, you know, develop their chemistry fast. And I don't think Canada's chemistry was quite there on opening day. So this game today is going to be interesting in the fact that Czechia was able to beat Canada, but I think this Canadian team is going to be a lot different than the one we saw on Boxing Day. What's your sense of uh, the state of hockey um, at a local or even a junior level in the context of what we've been covering on this show and many others, when it comes to Hockey Canada, you know, I was, uh, as a hockey dad, you know, I've been watching all of this very closely, covering it as well. What's your sense of what hockey has gone through and continues to go through? It's not over. And in the context of all the excitement you're actually seeing in this tournament. I think people, you know, put their concern and anger towards the people who were running Hockey Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. In, in the case of this particular team, these kids had nothing to do with what happened before. All the terrible things that we've heard about, it has nothing to do with this particular team. And I, and I think, you know, I think hockey fans can separate that, that they can cheer for this particular team and these kids and, you know, separate that from what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think, uh, in regards to the context of hockey, how important is what's occurring and has occurred so far, but it's still occurring in the, in the context of Hockey Canada. Do you think we're going to see that systemic change that many are asking for? I think so. I hope so. But I, I think there's an, there's been enough enough of a glare of the spotlight, and it's not over yet. And it's it certainly is needed. I mean, you know, we've seen the Hockey Canada board get changed now. Mm-hmm. I remember at the start of all of this, the people who ran Hockey Canada were very you know, defensive and not like trying to hold back, you know, the hordes and try to stay in charge of everything. And eventually, you know, the glare of the media, the anger of the general public knocked that wall down. So I think there is going to be a systemic change. I think it's happening already. Mm-hmm. And that's good. Uh, one of the things uh, when you brought up the issue of uh, Connor Bedard is that he's a, he's a North Shore player. We've had stars in the NHL. Uh, who have uh, come from the Metro Vancouver area. I was talking to one of my colleagues here at the station earlier today, a, a parent as well, and what she said is, you know, I, I'm not going to steer my kids towards hockey. And it, it wasn't not for a love of hockey. It's the expense of hockey, particularly uh, in, in the Vancouver area. Uh, ice time. We're not making too many rinks anymore just because of the cost of land. Um you know, and generally when you think about stars in hockey, you think of always small-town Canada, less so about big cities, not that, like I've said, we've had stars come out of Vancouver before, but it is unique in the sense that Connor Bedard is from Metro Vancouver, and he, as you say, has a very good chance of being um, drafted as number one. But hockey has also got challenges in our city too, doesn't it? Just in regards to living and expense and the, 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 the sport itself. Yeah, well, even going back to when I was a kid, mm-hmm. you didn't. There weren't a lot of great BC players, and and the general feeling back then was, well, you know, on the prairies or in, in Ontario and in Quebec, you can skate on ice in the wintertime, and you don't have to actually go to a rink. <laughs> it's free. Just strap on some skates, get a stick and a puck, and away you go. And in in BC, especially in the Vancouver Metro Vancouver area, that isn't really the case. Like you don't you don't see Deer Lake or Burnaby Lake or Las Lagoon freezing over, and everybody goes and plays hockey on it. It doesn't happen. So you have to you know rent the rink, and that's expensive. I I don't have children, 
So I only hear this from others, but it is an expensive sport to play. It's not not really a sport you um, you see a lot of kids who you are from families who struggle with money play mm-hmm. because they just don't have the means to do that. Um, now, not every kid who plays in BC is from a wealthy family, but it's you don't see as many kids able to play in this part of the world as easily as you can play on the prairies in Ontario and Quebec with the winters. Yeah, for me, it was always the early morning hours, and I know a lot of hockey prints. Well, that's uh, true. Right? (laughs) So my son says, Dad... (laughs) That's the other thing. Yeah, but he says, Dad, I'm going to focus on basketball. I was doing cartwheels in my head. (laughs) I tell you that much. There are too many 5 a.m. basketball practices. Yeah, Yeah, the the kids in northern Saskatchewan, they can get the ice at 11 a.m. just by going outside. (laughs) You know, the kids in B.C. have to get up at, you know, like they're farmers and get up at 5 in the morning to go to the rink it's funny you know you mentioned metro vancouver you're right there there are some there's been some very good hockey players come out of this area but when you compare it to other parts of canada there aren't as many and i think it's you know strictly because of the weather and the fact that you have to go to the rinks to play and it's not cheap that's true well great to see uh, connor bedard there and uh, as you said he's leading score with eight goals and 21 points and uh, we'll be cheering on Canada throughout the show as well. Thanks so much, Squire. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jazz. In the first hour, uh, we talked to Douglas King. He's the executive director of the Together Against Poverty Society, which is based in Victoria. Now, his organization, like some elected officials, are advocating for vacancy control. Now, essentially, when one tenant leaves a unit, the rent would remain the same, subject only to the allowed 2% annual increase. It would bar landlords from setting a new rate at what the market can bear, which is permitted now. So essentially, if a tenant moves out, a new tenant comes in, you can set the price as a landlord. And uh, Mr. King and his organization, Together Against Poverty Society, and some municipal politicians are saying, look, we need need to get rid of that, actually. Uh, but when it comes to this issue, I think it's important we speak to the landlords as well. Joining me now is David Hutniak, CEO of Landlord BC. David, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, let's get to the uh, the core issue here. We were uh, speaking to Douglas King, for, for the executive director of Together Against Poverty Society, and uh, his organization is basically saying that um, landlords essentially shouldn't be able to increase rents once a tenant moves out uh, and a new tenant moves in. Your thoughts on, on, on that assessment? Well, to be perfectly candid... It never ceases to amaze me how you know certain st- stakeholders continue to insist that uh, the impact of vacancy control is benign and that there are no unintended consequences. And that's simply flat out wrong and frank- frankly hugely harmful to renters in our, our communities. The reality is uh, vacancy control, if, elim- if implemented, would have... Uh, huge detrimental effects to existing owners and, and operators of rental housing in terms of their ability to make continued investment. And uh, equally, if, if not more importantly, considering we have a supply crisis, uh, it would basically ensure that uh, uh, rental developers and the lenders who give them money to build purpose-built rental housing would go to other jurisdictions. There would simply be no business case to build rental here. So, so this is to suggest this versus, uh, you know, supporting supply and some other solutions that government can take is literally a scorched earth approach and would have 
consequences that we would be uh, suffering for decades, to be very candid with you. Uh, Now, one of the arguments being made in support of this proposal is that, look, other jurisdictions have something similar, uh, like Quebec, uh, like PEI. Do you know of any jurisdictions that do this and where they are successful and still are able to provide adequate supply? Well, well, PEI has, you know, a few hundred rental units, so I don't think that that's, uh, uh, you know, a jurisdiction that we should be considering. The one, the one that actually comes uh, to, 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 you know, is brought up more frequently than not by uh, advocates for this measure is Manitoba. And without getting uh, too deep into exactly what they're doing, simply put, yes, they do have vacancy control, but what they've done is built in uh, a whole series of sort of exemptions, basically. And uh, the end result is that uh, it's it's what I guess we would describe as an extremely watered-down version of vacancy control. Despite the fact that it's watered down significantly, you know, Manitoba has probably, um, you know, some of the oldest rental housing, and the fewest number of new units built uh, of any province in the, in the country, and simply because, to support what I said earlier, the business case to continue to invest in the existing stock is is largely not, not there. And again, in terms of building new rental stock, while we did see uh, a small uptick there, um, you know, five you know, sort of five six years ago, um, in, leading into um, to the pandemic largely because land is so cheap there and interest rates were so low, uh, you know, vacancy control in that province, even as they have it structured, is detrimental uh, to to uh, to uh, any serious consideration by developers and lenders to build rental there. So so that's, that's you know, if you want to look at an example of how it quote-unquote works, that's a great example. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2023, <clears throat> the, the government, uh, last September, I believe, uh, that was the time, announced a 2% rent increase cap for 2023. The industry has been dealing with those caps uh, for, for, for a few years now. Give me a sense of what you're hearing from landlords in, the, in regards to their properties, upkeep, and just the overall environment uh, here in the Lower Mainland for them. Well, obviously, you know, that was really disappointing that uh, the province made that decision. And, you know, listen, we, we get it. These are really challenging times for everybody. And, and, and renters, you know, are obviously in, in, in some uh, tough situations here with inflation and just the cost of living in general. And so they made that decision. It, you know, the, our industry as a result, uh, it, the legislated increase was 5.4 percent. It was cut back to two. I mean, that, that represents probably you know half a billion dollar plus haircut for our sector in 2023. So we're subsidizing renters to that tune in 2023, in addition to regular rent control. So I mean, from our perspective, you know, again, these are challenging times. But you know, it just it just seems like there's a real, real you know degree of unfairness there. When you consider other, you know, food and, and everything else is is increasing in cost, and we don't see any measures there. But but having you know having said that, you know, listen, we're at the end of the day, we the province knows, and certainly the new premier and the new housing minister are acutely aware that the solution here is to get supply 
uh, we feel very confident that they are prepared to work with, with our sector, the private sector, to increase that supply. Uh, you know, we kind of all missed an opportunity with low interest rates uh, by not uh, getting enough rental built. Um, there's going to be action taken against municipalities who are, uh, you know, you know, putting up barriers and stalling the process. So, so from that perspective, you know, we're going to look at things positively here. But absolutely, you know, we're we're in a tough situation here, and the last thing we need is, you know, folks suggesting, you know, um, additional regulation and especially anything approaching vacancy control. I mean, it's just it would just make no sense at all. Uh, I'm curious. My final question to you: Once this rental cap, um, as I said, it's two percent. That's what landlords can raise rents by uh, in 2023 is two percent. Once these caps are lifted. If these caps are lifted, are we going to see a significant jump that first year in your mind, like a five, ten percent increase because of these caps have been in place for a no, few years now? No, absolutely not. Because the formula is CPI, it's, it's British Columbia CPI, and it's, it's, it's actually lagged because of how the calculation is done via um, the uh, as defined in the RTA. So you know we're all acutely aware of what the Bank of Canada is doing, and it's very conceivable that by the end of 2023. Uh, or earlier, you know, we're going to see some meaningful uh, reduction in the inflation rate and, and CPI affected affected accordingly. So, uh, you know, we're entering a lower inflationary rate, and that means that for 2024, you know, it's not inconceivable that you know the increase will be uh, uh, even by by the RTA formula will be two percent or or something marginally higher. Uh, so, so no, we're we're entering, uh, you know, uh, a period here. Once uh, I think once we get through 2023, of much lower uh, inflation, of lower CPI. So, you know, in, in, here we go again. You know, the this was would have been in, in effect a bit of a catch-up year for for uh, two two years of rent increase freezes at 1.5 last year. But you know, you know, that's just that's the reality. So. Uh, it's, it's, I think, uh, you know, we're looking at, uh, uh, much more, I guess, if you want to call it stability for renters, uh, in, you know, some challenging times for us was, was you know, the recovery of these, uh, few years have been, uh, is going to, you know, take a long time, if ever, mm-hmm. to, to be recovered. David, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Jazz. Take care. For a third day, divided Republicans left the Speaker's chair of the U.S. House sitting empty uh, as party leader Kevin McCarthy failed and failed again in an excruciating string of ballots to win enough GOP votes to seize the chamber's gavel. Now that's up to 4.35 Pacific time. Let's see what happens uh, tonight. Now pressure was building uh, as McCarthy lost the seventh and eighth rounds of voting and launched on a historic ninth ballot and tenth a tenth ballot beating the number it took the last time this happened 100 years ago in a fight to choose a speaker in a disputed election. But with his supporters and foes seemingly stalemated, feelings of both boredom and desperation seem increasingly evident with no end in sight. In short, folks, what a mess. Joining me now is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini to give us an update at this hour in regards to what's transpiring in Washington. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, how would you describe today? Because you've gone through uh, multiple votes today. Uh, what's it been like uh, uh, in Washington? 
I mean, look, this is uh, it's difficult to watch. It's probably difficult for Republicans to watch, and it's likely difficult for the Republican base to watch because this was a majority that was hard fought, that was far smaller than what Republicans wanted. And here they are into day three of their majority. They've got no work done yet because they have no speaker elected. There are no rules. They can't actually do anything that they promised the American people who voted for them that they would show up to Washington to do. So heading into this kind of almost unprecedented territory uh, of at least a 10th round of voting, which you know, the last time a 10th round was needed was 1833. This is not a good look for Republicans as they start this job. Is there any... Um talk that uh, the, that there will be some sort of agreement in the next 24 hours or are, are, are we remotely close well it depends on who you're talking to the 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 house majority leader kevin mccarthy the speaker hopeful repeatedly over the last couple of days has been defiant saying that the votes are going to be there that the deals are going to be made but there are people who are in this kind of rebel group coming out to say that they are miles apart that there is no deal on the table that they're willing to go for and then there are four or five who say that they're never going to vote for kevin mccarthy regardless of what deal is offered and i think the problem uh that you're seeing republicans at least the moderate republicans start to run into is Kevin McCarthy is whittling away the speaker to a point of where a speaker might just not be necessary because the power won't be there. That might not satisfy those who are propping him up right now, which could ultimately force the hand to get somebody else in the race. Because if McCarthy allows for the kind of few on the furthest of the right to hold all of the power, the rest of the party is not going to fall in line. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, how uh, have, uh, in your mind, talking to folks there, uh, how have uh, the the Democrats treated all this, watching this, witnessing this? What is sort of their stance been? I mean, look, uh, from the, the analysts that we've spoken to over the last kind of 24, 48 hours, they're pointing to the fact that these margins that Republicans are holding right now, this very slim majority, is the exact same majority that Nancy Pelosi and her party held for the last two years. They all lined up behind Pelosi. It went to one round of voting, and she became Speaker for the second time. Uh, and also, any bill that was brought to the floor was only brought to the floor, because this is a Democrat rule, if there was 100% support from within the party and they were able to pass through round after round after round of legislation even with such a slim majority so Democrats are saying, look, this is a problem that Republicans created. Republicans need to dig themselves out of the hole. They're not going to do anything to help them because if the situation was re- was reversed, it's hard to think any Democrat would be bailing out, uh, any Republican would be da- bailing out the Democrats right now. But this is a moment for them to sit back to say, this is your mess. You need to fix this mess or take after what we did and act the way that we used to act. Now, uh, you know, we could be having this conversation tomorrow. Uh, My understanding was uh, that there wasn't supposed to be a session tomorrow if if they had gotten through the votes. Um, Tomorrow also is the anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Um, I guess there is some, some uh, some symbolism there 
in regards to populism, in regards to the inability at this point uh, to, 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 to uh, support a speaker and the Republicans' inability to do so, it just highlights the fracture within the party. Absolutely, uh, it does. And look, January 6th, obviously, uh, a day that many Democrats uh, will always hold Republicans responsible for, or at least a number of Republicans, including uh, the former president. And you're right, uh, no sitting was the plan uh, for how this vote was going to go. They wanted to just be able to kind of skip past January 6th and then pick things up at the beginning of next week. And I think a remarkable moment of this is there is not a speaker uh, at the moment. And because of that, it means that the committees that were to be wiped out when Republicans officially took control haven't happened yet. So the January 6th committee and all of the information that it gathered and all of the information that still sits with the National Archives is still present and is still going to linger over this building uh, as January 6th is marked. And that is something that I think is going to weigh heavily on the minds of many of these congressional uh, lawmakers that are walking in or out for for whatever reason, uh, because, again, they can't come together. It was a fractured Republican Party that ultimately led to what took place on January 6th. And here we are two years later, and this Republican Party is still finding itself kind of the source of a political nightmare in D.C. Um, with what has transpired today, and easily could go into tomorrow, plus the anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, is there any pressure on these elected officials when it comes to public sentiment? I mean, the public must be quite frustrated witnessing all this in the United States. Uh, sure. I mean, Republicans understand that, uh, that that the public is seeing this. And again, you know, we talked about this yesterday, uh, that the public is seeing this because there are no rules right now. So the cameras are rolling far more than they would be. Uh, and there is a sense of frustration that is growing, not just amongst the Republican base, but kind of amongst the uh, the American base as a whole, because work is simply not getting done. And, you know, whether it's because it's a national security concern or whether it's because there are some Republicans in the base that want to see these investigations in into, you know, the weaponization of, of departments or into the, the president or into Hunter Biden. None of these things can happen right now. And until this Republican Party is able to unify itself uh, and stand behind one person, there is a growing sense of unease because this was supposed to be Republicans' big moment to kind of uh, own the libs and and take over and and kind of show America what Republican governance is about. They are struggling to do the basics in electing a Speaker of the House, uh, and that could, you know, it could haunt them come two years from now when it's time for an election and, you know, there's a chance to take the White House. The base may say, well, look at what happened two years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, it, it's it's interesting to watch uh, where we sit, and I certainly know you have a front row seat, and we look forward to chatting with you again on this issue uh, tomorrow. Thanks for your time today, Reggie. Thank you. We were speaking to Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, uh, who was giving us an update on the third day of voting as divided Republicans left the Speaker's chair of the U.S. House sitting empty. Now, a new generation of conservative Republicans, many aligned with Donald Trump's Make America Great Again agenda, want to upend business as usual in Washington, and that's what you're seeing playing out uh, in real time. And those individuals, uh, some have said a handful, even about 30 people, uh, 30 elected officials, uh, Republicans, uh, many say, are committed to stopping uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy's rise without concessions uh, to their priorities. And it is playing out, as I said, in real time tonight in Washington. 
Washington. It does speak to populism and the rise of extremism in our politics and our broader cultural conversation uh, in the United States. But what's that mean to us here in Canada? Are we seeing the same sort of elements uh, or is it different here? Joining me now uh, is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hello, Jazz. Uh, first of all, your thoughts just watching stuff in Washington. I mean, oh. you've followed politics for years here in our <laughs> yeah, province. but No, I'm, uh, I devour U.S. political history, U.S. history, and what's happening down there is unprecedented, well, totally unprecedented. We haven't seen it for about 100 years. And you raise the point, is what we're seeing down there, can it happen other places in terms of this rise of the political populism? And we're seeing it around the world. I've been tracking this as a political journalist, not just in the United States, but parts of Europe where uh, populism, which occurs, basically is based on this political argument that somehow the government is corrupt and the little guy is getting smashed by this corrupt government. Therefore, you sort of coalesce around some popular issues and and breed mistrust in um, institutions in society. And we're seeing that in uh, basically in the United States. That was what Trump was all about. If you recall his drain the swamp chant back in his first successful election campaign, which was a shot at the Washington government, that the, the very notion of government in the states was corrupt. And that was sort of fed what we're seeing now with the Republican Party. And I do think there's a danger going to see that spilling over into Canada. I was struck this past summer by a poll by the Abacus uh, Data polling group, which found that 52% of the population agreed with the statement that official government accounts of events cannot be trusted, which is basically conspiracy theories. 42% felt the same way about the media news reports could not be trusted. So I think there's a rising sentiment in Canada, just like the United States and other places, where it feeds into this notion that somehow our institutions are broken and corrupt and allows this 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 anger to be whipped up and it's tied to nationalism uh, and we're seeing it in a way Alberta you know in terms of Danielle Smith her whole approach is about it, we're now only about Alberta we're not about Canada we're not about a larger group we're about a smaller group and that's another hallmark of, of mm-hmm. uh, populism that's part of Trump it wasn't about being representative of 100% of Americans it was just his, his relatively minor group uh, but was enough to form power do you I mean you saw the uh, the trucker convoy last mm-hmm. year in Ottawa you saw some of that uh, even during the Conservative Party leadership race and times even Conservative uh, members of Parliament speaking at the rally or at least at the very time, at the very least being sympathetic to a lot of those that were in Ottawa mm-hmm. protesting. Um, do you see uh, us ever getting to the point? I mean, there is going to be some populism here. Of course, you, you can't ignore what's happening around the world. But do you think we'd ever get to the point with regards to what you're seeing uh, in the U.S. today with a party that is so, even though it's a small group of people, it is fractured. Do you see that actually getting deep, you know, deeply um, sort of uh, embedded in Canadian culture or even here in, in B.C. political culture? Oh, I think there's always a possibility of something like that happen. I think the trucker convoy exposed the fact that there's a, a portion of society, not by any means a majority, but, you know, I saw a number of polls in the midst of that trucker convoy by very reputable polling firms that suggested about 25% of the population to 30% kind of supported them, even though, you know, poll after poll showed any politician associated with that was viewed about 60 to 70% in very negative terms. But you can't dismiss and uh, ignore that 20, 20 or 30% of the population subscribe to some fairly extreme views on both the left and the right. This is not necessarily a total right-wing thing. You saw the emergence of left-wing groups like Antifa, who, which, uh, again, 
uh, very much feeding into the notion that we have a corrupt society, except they approach it from a left-wing perspective rather than a right-wing. So I think there's a possibility. I'm not sure it's ever going to dominate our politics, but certainly the last year, and with the growth of social media and the impact of social media, that's something that wasn't there for years and always has an ability, I think, to amplify what is really minority voices to a much louder and broader stage. Is it is it possible to build coalitions anymore or at these at this moment in, yeah. in history i mean I, and i look at even political parties in bc or uh, federally as well i mean it seems like it's almost impossible now because the 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 as you say the left and the right keep pulling us apart even though the majority yep. of us probably are somewhere in the center well you've got the conservatives now i think are convulsed by the people's party and which has pushed them to the right so the people's party is basically a fringe party it's it has very small number of supporters but in a landscape or a political arena where every vote counts, where you've got minority governments, uh, the Liberals forming power with less than a third of the, of the vote, uh, it means the Conservatives are finding themselves paying attention to a fringe party and hoping to secure enough votes to overtake the Liberals. And so that becomes less of a coalition, um, of a traditional coalition for Conservatives. So they're, they're changing the nature of their, of their identity. And you're seeing in B.C., you're seeing the B.C. Liberals, which for a long time was the so-called Free Enterprise Coalition, first put together by W.A.C. Bennett, then reassembled by Bill Bennett, and assembled again by Gordon Campbell. It's now changing. It's becoming a more conservative party as it, as it sort of hides its way away from the liberal part of the party. So political parties are changing all the time. And the NDP finds itself, as we saw in the leadership race, sort of uh, at war internally with some environmental organizations, which sort of are on the left-wing part of the spectrum. So I think it is harder to, to construct these these coalitions and to maintain them through the rise of some fringe on either side of the political spectrum. And then you throw in social media and then the growing distrust with our institutions. It's tough for a mainstream party to remain intact as a coalition. That it is. Key, thank you. All right, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.